떠나서 So the meditation we did two days ago which came under the kind of the category of compassion um, isn't really regarded as a practice of compassion in Buddhism. There's no phrase, there's no yeah, there's just no wording for self-compassion. The, if you say that in Tibetan, it just doesn't make any sense. Because compassion is always for someone else. Whereas in English, self-compassion, feeling compassionate for yourself makes good sense. But a, simil- a, a similar kind of terminological issue between our modern culture and, and Tibetan is they also in Tibetan have no words for self-loathing, low self-esteem. The notion of self-hatred just sounds completely crazy in Tibetan. It just doesn't mean anything like, why are you putting those words together? That, that can't be, you know? Um, but since these words have clear meaning, we know exactly what they mean, all of these, that little bundle, self-loathing and so forth. Uh, as that has meaning, then likewise self-compassion has meaning. But if we ask, well, that meditation that we did on Saturday morning, is that, is that compatible with Buddhism? Since there is no notion of self-compassion. And the answer is, yes, it's definitely compatible, otherwise it wouldn't teach it. Um, but it wouldn't be called compassion, it would be called nenjum. It would be called an aspiration of definite emergence. You know, Translated kind of poorly as renunciation, because renunciation, once again, this cannot be overemphasized, really emphasizes just what you're moving away from. I re- a person may say, okay, I renounce cigarettes, I renounce alcohol, I've seen the downside, you know. That's fine. But then that's all it is, you're just not doing that anymore. It's not suggesting that there's really a positive side to it. So simply renouncing samsara, well, that's good, but it can may just give, you, give rise to chronic deep depression if you have nowhere else to go apart from oblivion. So that was all. This self-directed compassion really is simply that, developing an authentic aspiration for one's own freedom from suffering all the way down to the roots of suffering as this existential, pervasive existential suffering. So, and this also, there's a direct correlation. The deeper the sense of renunciation, and again, what shall I say, or um, how do you say, aspiration of definite emergence. It's kind of quite clunky and contrived, but what do we do? There's, I don't see a better translation. Um, and renunciation, okay, we'll stick with it as long as you know what it really means. That it has this equally, this positive orientation as well as the negative moving away from. But here's a very important truth. And that is the deeper one sense of this aspiration for, for freedom. That's easier, isn't it? Aspiration for freedom, the deeper, the more authentic, more deeply reality-based that is for oneself, then the deeper one's compassion for others can be. If one's aspiration for one's own freedom is limited only to, let's say, hedonic suffering, the suffering of suffering, well, animals have that, everybody has that, everybody doesn't. Any essential being doesn't like to suffer. And so if that's as far as it goes, then that's as far as the compassion will go as well. You'll be reading the media, you'll, find, you'll learn about some natural catastrophe or you know, something else, just some, mit, some misfortune taking place in the world, and you may first feel empathy, and then, oh, may they be free. You might even want to be dynamically engaged, really be an activist and really try to do something. It's all very good. But it is limited to that one bandwidth of hedonic suffering or the suffering of suffering. So it's good, but then it's also episodic. And that is, as soon as that suffering subsides, maybe it's Ebola, well, hopefully this whole, this, this spread of Ebola, hopefully they will find medical treatment for that, they'll contain it, it will subside. 
We can certainly pray so because it's already brought so much suffering. But once it's subsided, then the compassion relevant to Ebola, that also disappears. And now, okay, well, now things are okay. You know, then you kind of settle in. Okay, we're okay now. Whereas, actually, we're not. You know? So I'd like to relate this, because we're going to go back to compassion this morning, and then authentic compassion really extending out to all sentient beings. But back to a point uh, raised by Hosa, a very important one, and you saw the glee, really, with which I responded to it. And that is when mudita, empathetic joy, goes astray and falls into just hedonic fixation. Just fixation on, uh, it's kind of like just being totally enthralled by or mesmerized by hedonic pleasure, well-being, that that becomes one's total focus. Herein lies my happiness. And then what's the antidote? And the antidote, of course, is loving kindness. Well, that will work. I mean, I've given this some reflection because I think it's a very deep issue. And that is that using loving kindness as a way to extricate yourself from this rut of just focusing on the hedonic and just thinking that's it, that's all there is to happiness, it's hedonic, stimulus-driven, just bring on those good stimuli. And of course, let's avoid the unpleasant stimuli of hedonic suffering. Um, If one is a materialist, if one thinks that really the mind is nothing more than function of the brain and death is total annihilation, frankly, I don't think that antidote will work. I really don't think it will. And we see it around us everywhere. People who do believe, you know, mind is a function of the brain, you know, isn't that obvious? And death is, well, when you're dead, you're dead, you know, get over it. Um, then the notion that, you know, they should, that such people, if you, if you speak to such people and say, you know, it would be really helpful for you, in a, in a spirit of loving kindness, it'd be really helpful for you if you would at least start hedging your bets, you know, develop a hedge fund, so you're deeply invested in the hedonic, but you might want to give some really significant investment of time and creativity and energy and so forth to cultivating the eudaimonic. Uh, it's a real hard sell. It's a very hard sell. Because the response would be, that seems rather abstract to me. Whereas when I get a new car, or I have sex, or I have a really good meal, or I go on a great vacation, I get that. And that's something money can buy. And what money can't buy, you might be able to get with power. And what power can't get you, you might be able to get with prestige and status. But basically with those three engines, money, prestige, and power, I can pretty much get anything I want. And therefore this eudaimonia, uh, maybe a a hobby. Maybe maybe I'll do a weekend retreat once in a while. Maybe I'll do 20 minutes a day. You know, 99% over here and 1% over there. You know, cover my bets. You know cover my bets, but it will never take off. And for a very simple reason, and that is here we are, as long as we're not sick and really suffering from old age or on our deathbeds, uh, the hedonic looks like it's pretty promising. You know? And then we'll do everything we possibly can to remain looking young and everything we possibly can to be looking good and keeping fit and protecting ourselves hedonically and then just not thinking about sickness, aging, and death. Let's just not think about it. Let's not talk about it. Let's just be here now. In fact, let's meditate so that we can just be here now. 
in a non-judgmental, moment-to-moment awareness, let's not think about the future. Let's not connect the dots. Let's not look at causality. Let's just eat our raisins. Moment-to-moment, savoring every raisin, every plum, every grape, every sexual encounter, every, every, right in the moment, ain't life grand, and now I'm spiritual too. So this is where a lot of secular Buddhism comes from. They see anything within Buddhism that has kind of the whiff, the taint of a religion, and they hold their nose and throw that out. Out with that. We don't like religion. That's okay. But of course, they're both emasculating and eviscerating Buddhism when they do that. Because they're bringing in these stereotypes of religion that are completely Western creations, superimposing this in religion, and with the assumption that we, we, we moderns, we know what's going on. Now, how does Buddhism conflict with our materialistic assumptions and beliefs and so forth? And so I have, I have to say I'm not particularly impressed by almost everything that comes out of this so-called secular Buddhist movement because it just seems to be wildly bigot, bigoted, ethnocentric, closed-minded, and dogmatic. Not to say that we should literally accept everything in Buddhism. That could be equally everything I just said. But the open-mindedness, the open-mindedness, the, the enthusiasm to put to the test the Buddhist hypotheses and not throw them out even without a test because they don't conform to our preconceptions or what we think science says. So I think the loving kindness will not work to antidote fixation on hedonic. If one is a materialist, one will never develop renunciation. It'll never happen. Depression, sure. Disillusion with, with you know, life, sure, why not? But then you just go to the pharmaceutical industry to get some help. You know, help me over this. Help me over this bump because life kind of sucks. But you know, kill the messenger. Treat the symptom. And so that's what we see. That is modernity right there. That's how it, that's how it operates. So if one is holding materialist worldview, then that worldview absolutely supports a single-pointed samadhi on the hedonic. And this, the, the single-pointed... Samadhi on the hedonic supports, in this reciprocity, supports a materialistic worldview. And then if we think beyond, if we try to go transcendent, then with Ray Kurzweil and others of that sort, they think, well, the next stage of human evolution, as we dehumanize human beings and humanize or anthropomorphize robots, computers, and so forth, the next phase is we'll become quasi-robotic, fully robotic, and then transcend our human fleshly existence altogether, and we'll be conscious robots that can live forever. You know, that is actually a view that is not considered to be psychotic. It's actually promoted as something, oh, maybe that takes serious consideration, you know, by a psychotic press. So we moved on to compassion. But again, the deeper this aspiration for freedom, the deeper, the more rich, more profound, the compassion can be utterly imbued with wisdom. We move on to compassion. Once again, I think if one has a materialistic worldview, you can't go very far because it will crush you. Marissa wrote me a very, very thoughtful note in this regard. But, uh, you know, we are, again, as I said before, and pardon me for saying the obvious, but we are being inundated by the bad news of the world, like over 200,000 years of human history, this has never happened before. What's happened in the last century? Not for the first 200,000 years minus you know, one century. Uh, this is a, a savage experiment we're running our, on ourselves to see if we can be exposed to this much violence and evil 
evil. Oh, we get it all. Parents killing children, ISIS beheading aid workers. Aid workers. And so on. You know, and the list does go on and on. The magnitude of evil that we're exposed to, the magnitude of violence, the magnitude of suffering, of delusion, of greed, uh, is enough to numb the mind into submission. And so if one is a materialist, one learns how to cope. And we have. We learn how to cope by developing this dissociation, this barrier, this removal. Not my problem. Until it's in my neighborhood, not my problem. You know? There was an, a good article in the New York Times just recently by a person who was uh, critiquing a, an op-ed writer for the New York Times about global warming. And he said, well, you know, frankly, has global warming had any impact on your life? That was kind of like refutation. You know, global warming, wah, wah, wah. But really, what's it done for you? And the response was very good. It was really a bodhisattva, bodhisattva or bodhicitta response by the New York Times op-ed writer. And that he said, this is the problem. That right there, that's the problem. Is if it doesn't affect me, screw it. N equals one. There's one person who counts, and that's me. Or if you want to make that national, there's one country that counts. One's own country, etc. You know? And he said, this is really, I, I, I love to see the Bodhisattva message coming in a secular context in the New York Times. It's refreshing. And uh, he moved. He said, that's the problem right there. N equals one. One person really matters. And if global warming hasn't influenced my, my life, I don't care about it. It's not my problem. When it gets on my doorstep, then I'll start taking it seriously. But until it's on my doorstep, somebody else's problem. Even if I'm contributing to it, well, not enough that it impacts me, so why should I care? That's a good materialistic view. And then the, the op-ed writer for the New York Times said, that's the problem, here's the solution. It wasn't quite large enough, but it was really a big step in the right direction. N equals all of humanity. What his, what his holiness calls sense of universal responsibility. N equals all of humanity. If something is significant for all of humanity, then it's significant for me, therefore I take it seriously. Buddhists would just go one step further, because that's really kind of a Judeo-Christian kind of thing. Humanity, 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 and all the other sentient beings are basically for us to eat, or use, or employ. Uh, well, of course, the Buddhist view is N equals all sentient beings. So that's good. But we come back to this really grave issue with gravitas, with depth, with sobriety. Very sobering, there's another word. And that is, if, as we are about to do in this meditation, if we're going to seek to open our hearts and our minds, expand the, flow, the scope of our awareness to the suffering of all sentient beings, on all dimensions, then, frankly, I think, from the level of human mind, it cannot bear it. It will be crushed. From the level of substrate consciousness, it'll just say, no thank you, and withdraw right back into its own bliss, its own little private peace. You know? So, to my mind, the only perspective from which we can hold that and not be defeated by it, crushed by it, fall into an abyss of despair by it, if one really follows the implications. And this is what materialists generally don't do. They maintain, they maintain their worldview and a way of life that is pretty decent, may actually could be noble in certain respects, by not following the implications of what they believe. They protect themselves from it. It's called George Orwell in 1984 called it Crime Stop. It's called it Double Think. 
just ways of protecting, protecting yourself from your own worldview. It's quite, it was quite sharp, George Orwell, in this regard. But if we're willing to follow the implications of our worldview, it really strikes me that one absolutely has to have dharma. One needs to go down to the depth of Buddha nature, down to the nature of Rikpa, because my sense of it, maybe I'm wrong, but my sense of it is, is only from that perspective, that we can actually open the heart wide open, like open heart surgery, wide open, with no barrier, no protection, to the world's suffering, and not be completely crushed by it. So you can go into a loop, like, we get, like a computer goes into a loop, and you just go like that, and you just have to turn the whole thing off. Here's the loop. You'll start crying. I mean, never stop. So as we turn to the meditation, first the supplication, the empowerment, the disillusion of ordinary sense of identity, right down to pristine awareness, and then coming from that, maintaining the pure vision, I would suggest that needs to be the perspective for this meditation. That's the hope. That's really the hope. So good. So good. So let's practice.
If you wish to change postures, please do so now. With the aspiration to be free of all suffering and all the inner causes of suffering, and with the aspiration to free others, all beings, from suffering and its causes, with this motivation, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states. Dissolve all ordinary sense of identity, all ordinary appearances of your body, speech, and mind, and your own identity. Dissolve them all into emptiness.
And with the power of imagination, as you venture into the realm of possibility, arise from this non-duality of emptiness and of dharmakaya in a translucent form, shimmering light, empty, appearing but devoid of any inherent nature or substantiality. If you are effulgence, an expression of your own pristine awareness, and even if you cannot realize Rikpa right now, imagine it. Imagine your mind being none other than primordial consciousness, the mind of the Buddha. For a little while, sustain this purity of your own identity, the pure vision of your presence in the world. It is a choice you can make. This, too, is a possibility. Then, as in the discussion of the visionary clear light that we read about earlier, imagine the space of your awareness being filled with the light of your own awareness and encompassing first your own body and your immediate environment. But now extending out breath by breath. encompassing the other sentient beings in your near environment. Attending to them. Attend first to the sentient beings around you with respect to the blatant suffering that they experience, suffering in the body, suffering in the mind in their relationships with the world around them and other human beings and sentient beings at large. Bring to mind their suffering and the causes of such hedonic suffering, blatant suffering. And as the sentient beings around you come into the field of your awareness, arouse the aspiration as you do for yourself, naturally, effortlessly, May you, like myself, be free of suffering, free of this hedonic suffering and its underlying causes.
Suffering has no owner. And with each in-breath, imagine drawing in and extinguishing in your heart the darkness of this suffering, this dimension of suffering and its causes. as you continue to expand the field of your awareness in all directions. Bring to mind the sentient beings, our fellow travelers. Attend to their suffering. Long for their freedom. Breath by breath, imagine this sphere of awareness, this sphere of compassion, being drained of all the darkness and being filled with the light of freedom. Imagine freedom for all the world from this dimension of suffering that we all care about. And imagine freedom from its underlying causes.
And then with your awareness as vast and open, as unimpeded as space itself, turn to the second dimension of suffering that we call the suffering of change, which appears on the surface to be happy, joyful, but all rooted in attachment, craving. And therefore, it's simply suffering that's waiting to happen. Letting your awareness be open and spacious. Simply see now who comes knocking on your door. Whether it's individuals, whether it's collectives, whoever it may be, wherever there are sentient beings, Experiencing the suffering of change and not even knowing it. Thinking, this is the good life. This is what I always wanted. Arouse compassion. With the eyes of wisdom, arouse the aspiration. With each in-breath, may you be free. From this dimension of suffering and its causes practice as before.
Imagine the freedom that comes by cutting this fixation on the hedonic, exploring, discovering your own internal resources, your potential for finding genuine happiness within, simply by balancing the mind, cultivating the heart. Imagine freedom. Then turn to the deepest dimension of suffering, pervasive existential suffering that, that those who lack the eyes of wisdom simply regard as human nature, inevitable, just the way things are. But with the eyes of wisdom, you see, this is a dimension of suffering where the causes can be identified and they can be expunged, eradicated without trace and forever. Only when we see that hope possibility of freedom, can compassion arise? It's aspiration that all beings may be free of all dimensions of suffering, including this deepest and its underlying causes. Now is when you need this pure sense of identity, rooted in your own Buddha nature, this pure vision. And again, with the awareness wide open in all directions, see who comes knocking on your door, who comes to mind, and arouse the aspiration with each in-breath. May you, like myself, be free of all suffering and its underlying causes, and practice as before.
release all appearances and aspirations and let your awareness rest in its own nature. So it seems to me that authentic Dharma practice is living on the razor's edge uh, between two abysses, or the two extremes, of course. And that is on the one hand, as one gains a deeper and deeper insight and appreciation of the magnificence of Dharma, its beauty, its depth, its goodness. and one appreciates this opportunity to practice. Actually, to practice, look at a path and see where you are right in front of you and be able to look right down that path all the way to enlightenment, even in this lifetime. Be able to have that. That's why they say Buddhahood in the palm of the hand. You look at your elbow, then there, there it is right there, right there in front of you. And every step, every link, there, accessible. Still there are qualified teachers. There are conducive environments. There are spiritual friends. And we have that opportunity. Then no wonder, Atisha says in the seven-point mind training, he says, always be of good cheer. What on earth do you have to be unhappy about? On the one hand, right? Like boundless enthusiasm. Fourth perfection. Perfection of enthusiasm. On the other hand, as we see in the next chapter of Shantideva, the eighth chapter, the chapter on the perfection of meditation, where he goes into the equalization of self and other, the exchange of self and other, and then opening one's heart fully without reservation to the suffering and the causes of suffering of the world, feeling that you're hovering on the edge of an an abyss that could just fall into just endless, endless sadness for all sentient beings. 
And so there you are, right on the razor's edge. But if you can enfold those and integrate those two together so they're non-dual, that's called bodhicitta. So I've seen this holiness so many times in even one Dharma talk. Just this laughter coming up. This joyousness, like his, this whole, like his cup runneth over, like his body and mind is just not big enough to contain the joy, the lightness, the jubilation. Just the sheer joyfulness, just flowing out like a, like a fountain. They're just spraying in all directions, bubbling over, flowing over in all directions. We've all seen that, I think. And yet in the same Dharma talk, you can see he's just weeping. There's the great Bodhisattva. So, enjoy your day.